The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Good morning. It is wonderful to be in the house of God with you this morning. I am so very excited. My name is Ryan Musser, and I am a church member here, and I am incredibly blessed to get to bring God's word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 14. While you're doing that, um, I got a chance to preach about a month ago, and it feels like a few months ago for us. I don't know how your lives have been, but mine, it seems always to be a little bit of a rush, but lately there's been more of that. About a month ago, while I was preaching, my wife was sick quite frequently, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And she was sick so long that she went to the doctor and they were going to run all these tests. And they said, well, let us run one more test before we do this because we're going to send you in for some scans. And that one was a pregnancy test and she passed. Um, So, yeah. By round of applause, I assume you're volunteering to send them to college. Is that? All right, well. In any case, we are very, very excited uh, that in April this year, we have some new plans in our family, and so we are thrilled. Uh, found out she was two months plus pregnant without knowing, so that was very exciting. First trimester's over at this point. Congratulations, Rachel. We also found out about a week ago that it is a baby boy, so we are very excited about that. You might pray for us for other reasons. Nonetheless, our lives have been a bit hectic I was reflecting on the passages that I got to preach about a month ago, and uh, Gary Smith and I had to switch out because he needed to change dates, and that was actually ideal because the last time I preached, I don't know if you remember, probably not, but there was a passage that, that was read from Romans chapter 14, and I didn't end up referencing it at all. See, that Sunday I had looked at the lectionary, which is my habit, because there's tons of passages in there that I never think about preaching. I always look at it and see, and the unmerciful servant was that Sunday, and I felt great about that, and this passage also seemed to go along with that, and so I was going to use both of them, and the more I prepared, the more I realized they were talking about two completely different things, and this one was one that I was really glad to have dodged. But I serve a king who does not particularly care about my impression of his scripture. And the more I prayed about it, the more I realized that I'm not called to duck the passages that I want to. So this morning we are in Romans chapter 14 and beginning with verse 1. And if you'll read with me, it goes a little something like this. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? If it is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand." Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. And those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live unto ourselves. We do not die unto ourselves. If we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. Whenever you read any scripture, you should try to put it in context. If you're going to understand it, that's important. But I find particularly that it is important to do that with Paul because hopping into the middle of Paul can be very, very confusing. A few chapters back in Romans chapter 12, Paul has just said, Therefore, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And he starts telling people about the new life that we're supposed to have in Christ. And he spends time talking to people about what is right and what is wrong. What are the things that we're supposed to take up, put on, carry with us that are supposed to be our characteristics in this new life? Paul talks about that. What are the things that absolutely shouldn't be there anymore? Paul talks about that. He does that through Romans 12 and Romans 13. But in Romans 14, in this passage... And the chapter that follows, he's talking about things that aren't as simple right and wrong. He's talking about how we balance our lives with members of the church who view things differently than we do. I know, I'm as shocked as you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's actually already dealt with similar issues before of difference of opinions. There, there were people who felt like they could eat meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols because they didn't exist. But there were other people who felt that that was wrong. And Paul has to deal with people who have a difference of opinion. And while he has an opinion, he deals with that there. In verse 1 here, he says, Welcome those who are weak in faith but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Paul is referring to two groups, and he refers to them as the weak and the strong which sounds kind of insulting, but listen to where he's coming from. He says, don't, don't just welcome the weekend to start quarreling over opinions. Don't fight. You're supposed to accept without judgment on these disputable matters. The Greeks had this idea, the philosophers, of adiphora. And these were matters of indifference, matters that weren't essential, matters that people could differ about and still be okay. They're having some arguments over dietary restrictions and how we observe different holy days or whether we do. In verse 2, it says that some believe in eating anything while others eat only vegetables. Those are pretty two different sides of the dietary spectrum. For some, it doesn't matter whether the food was originally declared clean or unclean. They feel fine eating it. They probably are reflecting back on that passage with Peter, seeing the vision of all these things and God saying what I've called clean, what does it matter what you call it? And but for others, they are probably looking back at Daniel and others and other things they come from. And they say, no, I'm going to eat only vegetables. I'm dedicated to God and this is important. I was raised a Jew and I'm not going to eat these unclean things. I don't feel like that's right. They have a difference of opinion there. And then in verse 5 it says, some are observing holy days while others treat all days as equal. It's quite possible that some of the people who used to be Jews and some of the people who used to come from different things had particular holy days where they felt like this is an important thing. I I can now give honor to God on this day. Remember, some of these people have been Jews their whole lives and come from families of that. And 
Jesus didn't really come to start a new religion. He was just talking about what the expression of faith that God had been looking for looks like. And so it becomes controversial. And they are looking at the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Please remember that Sabbath, Shabbat, is for the seventh day. That's Saturday. The Christians had met together and singing of songs and studying on Sunday, and not everyone's keeping the Sabbath anymore, that seventh day, and there are people upset about that. And there are other people who have no background with the Hebrew Bible and no background with that, and they've come to Jesus and they find a great deal of freedom in the fact that each and every day to them is God's day, and why should I treat one differently? Ironically, in this passage, when Paul is calling the strong and the weak, he's calling those who have been religious longer weak. They've brought in some extra baggage and traditions that's arguably not absolutely necessary. But it's sincere and it's genuine. There are different groups. It's not just Jews and Gentile. There were people who were Jews and born Jews, and they probably would have been in that group of those he's calling weak. But there are also those who had been Gentiles and converted to Judaism before they started following Jesus. And for them, this goes against everything that they have been taught. There's value to them for doing things the way they had and now expressing that as their worship to Christ. There are probably even those from other philosophies, just Gentiles who were Stoics and others who have value and it has meaning for them to deprive themselves of other things to focus on God. And there's value and meaning for that and they don't seem to understand why the other side doesn't get it. Those who are labeled strong are probably those who just came in the doors, found Jesus, and now found that they have freedom in life to live. If it's not a sin in scripture and it's not a problem for God, then they feel free to go forth and enjoy life with God. And they don't understand why the other group doesn't get that. See, strong and weak division here has more to do with how comfortable they feel about their freedom of this new life in Christ. Paul makes it clear that we aren't to be the judge of one another about matters that aren't essential to the gospel, matters that are disputable, matters where Christians can reasonably differ. Verse three, don't look down on those who do differently for God has accepted them. Verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? Verse 10, why do you pass judgment? All will stand before God. Verse 12, each of us is accountable to God. And verse six, kind of in the middle He makes the big statement, whether we're eating or not, or treating the Sabbath or other holy days special or not, whatever we're doing, we're doing unto the Lord. So the weak shouldn't judge and the strong shouldn't make them stumble. If we continue on, it continues with this idea. The strong can't push the weak forward and the weak can't hold the strong back. Now, I gotta be honest, when I, When I read this, I'm a little confused. Paul seems to be asking them to live in harmony, in disagreement. A harmonious disagreement. If you have brothers and sisters, you know what the other side of that looks like. A non-harmonious disagreement. You probably had several of those. To live in a harmonious disagreement is to say that I'm going to care about this person and them more than being right. And 
That's not typical of the Apostle Paul when I see him in most places. If you got the impression that the Apostle Paul is a timid creature who is afraid of a fight, you have misjudged your man. In Romans chapter 12 and 13, he specifically calls out things that they cannot be doing. Paul isn't afraid of a fight at all. He says, you will not do that anymore. Don't do that. That cannot be a part of your life. You will do this. That must be a part of your life. He has no problem saying that. But in Romans 14 and 15, it's not that the matters are good in and of themselves. It's that the matters are good or bad depending on the connotations they have for the person who is doing them. That's a difficult concept. But as I was thinking about it, we have that exact same thing in our law today. Let me explain. There are different kinds of crimes. We criminalize laws differently. Some laws are what we call strict liability. Strict liability laws are where you are guilty whether you intended to do the thing or not. Almost every other law that we have requires a certain amount of intent, different levels of intent to be guilty of the crime. So for instance, today if you leave the church and you decide I've really got to go get over to Freebirds because I need my burrito and you go faster than the posted speed limit because you didn't know what the speed was, you have broken the law. You are guilty of that crime. It doesn't require any intent, any mindset whatsoever. It simply is a criminal act. It could be that your speedometer isn't working properly. It could be that there's an emergency that you're trying to get to. And those might be defenses for being guilty of the crime, but you're guilty of the crime just by going over the speed limit. And I am not going to ask how many guilty people there are in this room. That being said, most of our crimes do not work that way. Theft, for instance. In order to be guilty of the crime of theft, it doesn't just have to do with taking someone else's property. You have to take the property with this specific intent to deprive the owner of their property. If you don't do that, it's not theft. So if Nancy has left her swim towel at the pool and you think she's gone and she's just in the bathroom and you take her towel and you put it in your car because you're going to see her later and you have taken her property, you are not guilty of theft. Likewise, if something actually just fell into your basket or bag and you didn't pay for it and you walked out of the store, again, not guilty of theft. We have to prove that you had the intent to take away the property from the owner and to deprive it from them. A mistake or those kind of things doesn't count. Here, it's the same situation. It's not whether or not the person does the act. It's what their mind is at the time. It has to do with how much freedom they think they're allowed to have. Paul's saying that whatever side you end up on, that's not the most important thing. But what is important is whether or not the person who's been wrestling with God is convinced that this matter of opinion, they're actually following what they feel like God has convicted them to do. Verse 5. Let each person be convinced in their own mind. Their intent has to be that they're convinced that they're living out for God to the Lord this way. Verse 23, those who have doubts about what they're eating or doing are condemned if they don't follow their conscience. We can't, the hard part of this is we can't just listen to other people's opinions and then do them so that we'll be accepted. I want you to hear me about that again. I'm not saying that we can't listen to people who are telling us this is wrong and if it's actually wrong. But what I am saying is that on these matters of opinion, you have to wrestle with God yourself. I'm sorry. 
Wouldn't it be nice if I could just give you a little chart and say do, don't do? That'd be great. I would actually enjoy that. Nonetheless, there are times when we have to exercise our faith, and it's like a muscle. And when we don't, and it's a little flabby, as sometimes happens on me when I try to exercise, it can be a little sore working these things out. And it can be a little sore when they're just really difficult. But Paul says people have to feel free to come and to develop an opinion and to wrestle with it and to disagree. They have to feel comfortable because they have to work out their faith. They have to bring it. They have to have that relationship. If you're a Baptist and you have priesthood of the believer in your background, this idea that I am not your priest, that me standing up here today does not come between you and God, all of a sudden your relationship with God doesn't have to come through me, that idea, that idea is well-founded right here. It happens because you're required to wrestle with it and to deal with it. And it doesn't mean it has to make you struggle. For some people, they didn't carry their way. And that's fine too, provided that they didn't feel that they were doing something just because somebody else told them to. So Paul isn't giving us any easy answers. Why? That comes from the passage that was read earlier, that we read together from Romans 15, 1 through 6. In that passage, Paul is talking about how we have to be together. And in verse 5, he says, May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the more important thing here, and what Paul is using is, he is using the things that would seem to be there to tear us apart to actually bring us together. In the world we live in, Can you really think of many places where you're allowed to sit and be with other people who accept you when you disagree with them? I got to be really honest. I look around and in my world, I find that most of the people I know like to clump up with other people who agree with them on everything and then make the most ridiculous arguments about the people who disagree with them to make their argument be absurd. I'm a lawyer. We're trained to do this thing. And that's what people do. They tend to clump up just with the people who agree with them. And Paul's like, no, you don't get to do that. You get to be there with them. And when you disagree, you get to love them. And in harmony with one voice, praise God, because they are living unto the Lord. And it's not yours to judge. How different would the church look in the world if we did just that? How much hope and grace would be manifest to those lost around us if we were a place where they didn't feel like they had to come in and agree when they first got here. They just got to be in here and loved on and get to wrestle with God. Paul wants that. For the church in where? Rome. In the heart of the Roman Empire, right under the shadow of the emperor, he wants a congregation that is showing such grace and mercy and love that the capital knows it. Because getting the answers about every single detail of how this opinion or that one could be better isn't the more important thing. The more important thing is the development of the relationship there. It's in loving each other and existing in harmony when we don't agree that we look very different than the world around us and very much like Jesus who had very, very different people surrounding him that loved him and were together. I was preaching this on Saturday night as I often do to practice and I came to this point and my next point is and was that in marriage you often have to let little things go to build up the relationship and that I after 15 years of marriage had learned this and I heard a laughing from the corner of the room about the area where my wife was sitting 
So I guess what I'm getting at is it's very important, and we all know that we need to do this in marriage, and I could do a better job of it. It's not always important to show how right you are or how your opinion is so great. It's more important to care about the relationship you're developing there. That's the higher goal and standard, and none of you are shocked by this. And now we come to the application. And this is why I didn't want to preach this sermon. Because the truth is that you probably don't have a lot of people that you're arguing with about whether you should eat only vegetables or not. And you probably aren't spending a lot of time about whether or not feast days should be holy or fast days should happen. And the importance of Sunday, though you might. But we definitely have things in our world that tend to divide us. Matters where Christians can differ and disagree. Matters where we might feel passionate and be able to bring scripture and tradition onto our side and say, but what about this? And just so we're all uncomfortable, I thought of three. Number one that I thought of as I was reflecting on 15 plus years of ministry is I thought about how we dress. Because there are really more than two groups, but at least two groups. One group would say that it doesn't matter what you wear. Come as you are. We're coming to see Jesus. We just want people here, and that's the way it is. And another group would say, well, hold on. We ought to bring our best to God. We ought to bring everything. We ought to bring him our faith and show respect because this is God's house. And both of them could start pulling scripture, couldn't they? I get a little nervous when we start talking about what we're wearing because David danced naked in front of the, uh, on the ark. I get, I get concerned there. I've got to be honest. I'm afraid of following too much of a biblical path there. But nonetheless, both of those have merit in Scripture, and we could get into that, couldn't we? And across this room, there are probably people who go, if you're on stage, it'd really be nice if you were wearing a jacket. And there are others who are going, you know what would be really nice is if you were somebody that looked comfortable enough that somebody who's never been in church before could walk up to and feel comfortable. They didn't know you were the pastor. They didn't know you were preaching. They just thought, here's somebody, I'm going to talk to them. They have difference of opinion. Some people feel you should wear one thing when you're preaching in this service and another thing when you're preaching in the other one. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. I understand that's the thing. My king made me do it, and that's the way it is. I'm more afraid of him than you. Here's the truth of the matter. I don't care where you land on this issue. You are the church and you get to get over it and support one another. Because the truth is, if you've got people coming in and they disagree with you, we need to recognize that whether they're dressed formally or they're not, they're here to worship King Jesus. And that is that. And then I thought about the fact that I actually have experienced this before because I was a youth minister for a while in Hewitt, Texas. And while I was there... I had a situation where we started playing football in the parking lot because we didn't have anything else, so we used a parking lot. And we're playing football for half an hour in the Texas sun, and some students from the neighborhood start coming over, and I don't tell them they have to come in the church. They're just welcome to come and play football with us. And after half an hour, we go in and worship. And it continued that way to four to six weeks, and at some point in time, they started coming in with us to worship, as they were. Tennis shoes, basketball shorts that were sagging down a little bit, tank tops, and hats on their head. I had a lady come up to me and say, Ryan, I'm really excited that they're in here, but I really got a problem with what you're doing. I said, what is that? She said, look, these guys are sitting in worship, and their hat is on their head while they're singing in worship and while you're preaching every Wednesday night. And there's a verse in Scripture that says that they can't do that. 
I said, you're exactly right. And what I didn't say was, and that verse says that your head has to be covered when we do. But what I did say was this. Can we agree that while that is an important scripture, my opinion on that scripture is that it was culturally relevant and it doesn't have to be followed today. That's why certain parts of that are not. It was dealing with the situation where Paul was addressing where they were and what was going on. And can we agree that them hearing about Jesus has to be the first priority and the fact that they don't have parents or anyone else to take them to the church and that they've decided they're gonna walk in here on Wednesday night is so much more important that I just have to tell them about Jesus and focus on that. And she said, absolutely. That is how we disagree. She felt that passage was important, but we both agreed that it wasn't essential to the gospel and the gospel had to be there first. I thought about the second thing that we don't agree about. We don't agree about worship all the time, do we? We don't agree about songs. There are those, and always have been, who feel like certain songs are their preference. As a matter of fact, all of us probably have songs that are our preference, ways in which we feel the Spirit moving when we come to worship God that draw us in and bring an expression of our hearts. That happens, I hope, for you, and it does happen for me. And for some people, that is in a worship service where it is darker and the music is louder and it's got electric guitars in it and keyboards going and the songs are written just a few years ago. And for some people, it is using an organ and it's using piano and it's using a choir and a wonderful orchestra and everybody who's in their part in here and songs that for hundreds of years have brought people into faith closer to God. Of course, neither one of these are absolutely prescribed in Scripture. That doesn't mean that we couldn't find ways to support them. And it doesn't mean that we don't have strong opinions. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't use them in your life to grow closer to him. It just means that we don't agree. There were a lot of churches getting letters about contemporary songs and how they were very egocentric, focused on the individual instead of talking more about God. They were told how the instruments that were being used in those services were really from bars and other places and not really meant to express worship to God. That was happening in the 1800s about a guy named Isaac Watts' music the guy who wrote a lot of the hymns. This argument isn't new. The argument then was the psalms that we sing were good enough for David. They were good enough for my grandparents. They were good enough for my parents. They're good enough for me. This is not a new debate. And the truth is we're not gonna end it here today. But we don't need to fight about it at all. And one of the temptations that we have as Baptists because we get to vote and we have power and there's no pope over us, we get this, this temptation to grab the power and to change it to fit what matters to us. And Paul says we don't get to do that. See, Paul had the power. He could have made it the way he wanted to. He had an opinion. He showed what it was in here, but he didn't. Because the most important thing is that the people who don't agree with him, who are also following Jesus, they develop for their own minds and their own conscience the way that they follow Jesus and that they know they're supported and loved and cared for. Those first two might not have stepped on your toes. We also had a wonderful situation this summer that I want to thank 
everyone who did this for, where Baptists got in the press all over again because we don't agree about women in ministry. There's a passage of scripture in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read a little bit longer than just that passage. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8, it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, and also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold or pearls or expensive clothing. There is apparently a problem with wearing too nice of clothing. I'm not sure. But with good works, as is proper for men who profess reverence for God, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to be kept silent. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith, love, and holiness with modesty. People can disagree about this verse. Some of you may feel that this verse says women can't preach. I do not. And we may not agree about that, and that's okay. The verse says in verse 11 that women get to learn in silence and full submission. That word silence there actually fits really well with something Jesus already said. It actually means tranquility, meaning that the women can't be bothered. This is a revolutionary idea when it is being uttered that women get to be disciples. Do you remember Pastor Ellis preaching about Mary and Martha and how Mary got to sit at Jesus' feet as a disciple? This is exactly what it's saying there, that women got to come in and they got to learn and no one got to bother them. But the passage also says women shouldn't have authority over man or teach. That's the next verse. I want to point out that no passage says that they shouldn't preach. I know that's frustrating, but the word is teach. And there are three gifts in scripture that are used to describe these things. There is prophecy, there is evangelism, and there is teaching. And those three are listed. And the problem we have here is that the one that is most commonly associated with preaching is prophecy. Not teaching. And no passage says a woman shouldn't operate that particular gift. In Romans 12 and in, verse, in Romans 1, 12, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, Paul lists out these gifts and he ranks them a little bit and he puts prophecy above teaching. And just so we're clear, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching a really important sermon. He starts off by referencing the book of Joel, where he says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old and New Testaments. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Anna is a prophetess who is sitting there, and she sees the boy Jesus and starts proclaiming about the Christ child to all who are looking for the redemption of Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul starts talking about head coverings and when women are supposed to say certain things, and he says it this way, when a woman is praying or prophesying. He has no issue at all with her using that gift. Evangelism is the other one, and there's nothing in there saying that a woman can't evangelize. Lottie Moon would like you to know that she did. Other scholars completely disagree with this. Evangelism 
while many would see it as the one that's probably most close to pastoring in Scripture, evangelism and prophecy, some say, well, that's not actually the gift that has to do with preaching and being a pastor, that it's actually the gift of teaching. Okay. In that particular case, in the context we have here, we have Paul writing to Timothy, who is a pastor of a particular church in Ephesus, where Paul left him. And it's odd because in other places, Paul, if he's really talking about teaching everywhere and all times, says that we all should be involved in teaching in Colossians 3.16. Apparently, it is not only if you have that gift as your main thing, but it is also that all of us are supposed to be involved in teaching and edification. So no one, just so you know, takes the whole passage literally. And this is why people disagree, because the next verse says that women are saved through childbirth. Congratulations again. (laughs) When was the last time you went to a VBS and they said, now we're going to learn the ABCs of our faith, admit, believe, conceive? (laughs) We look at this passage and we recognize that Paul is dealing with a particular set of circumstances that are there in Ephesus. When it says Paul does not permit a woman to have authority over a man and permit a woman to teach, we should probably pay attention to the fact that Ephesus had the temple of Artemis in it and all of the priests were women. And those women were coming in and some of them coming to faith and those situations were going on and he's trying to stop people who are bringing in things that are not part of what Christ is doing and people in those situations were in the temple of Artemis. There are a bunch of women who are actually domineering the men. If anything, it could be argued that Paul is just trying to bring back some equality here because the men can't get a word in because they have no authority. I know we might have some women in the church who say amen to that, but nonetheless, I have brothers and sisters in the faith who would see these passages and absolutely disagree with me. And I say amen. Because they're wrestling with the same scripture I am and they're dealing with the same passage I am and they're filled with the same spirit I am and they are trying their best to understand and to follow Jesus. And I don't have a problem with it. All I'm saying today and the reason I brought up a controversial issue is to realize that people can disagree and they can still be Christians and follow. I'm not sure anywhere in this scripture that for this particular issue, Jesus would have us kick people out of the church or get rid of those churches. But that's just my opinion and I'm nobody here. So that's just fine. Nonetheless, if you don't agree with that, I encourage you to disagree. I encourage you to disagree with me because the most important thing is that you are in this church wrestling with God and able to express your opinion and to talk about how you view the scripture. My favorite thing on Sunday mornings, if I'm honest, isn't the worship service. It's what happens for me right after. I go to a Sunday school class called Beyond the Sermon. We don't do a different Sunday school lesson. We sit down and we just talk about what we heard in the sermon and we don't agree on hardly anything. I love it. I didn't tell them I was a minister for the first two years. I just sat quietly in and enjoyed the fact that these people loved each other as they were trying to grow closer to Jesus and they felt so comfortable to disagree on matters that weren't black and white in the faith. I view things maybe differently than you. I'm very thankful that there were women at the tomb who told the men, because I'm not sure the men would have found out otherwise. 
I'm very, very grateful for the fact that today in this place, that whether you believe we should dress one way or not care how we dress at all, that you all have found some way to be together. I'm very thankful that we have a choir full of people who come in here and sing every single week, who come on Wednesday night and practice it and do that and make a beautiful worship service in here. And I am so thankful that you people decided to pay for a whole nother service going on in there and that there are college students from the neighborhood that sometimes walk in and get to shake hands with me because they're in there worshiping in a different way. I am so thankful that we have women in this church who are serving and I'm so thankful that they serve alongside some men who question whether or not they should be doing those things. I am so very thankful that you don't agree and that somehow you make it work together. I am thankful for a place that my lost friends can come into and not feel like they have to fit into immediately by agreeing with everything that they can just come and find Jesus. I am very grateful for you today. In this place, may we be the body of Christ that is not made up of one mind, but of one heart, who follows in one faith and one God. And may we be one together. And may those outside of here who don't know him yet see something so gracious and so merciful and so encouraging that they come right in. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that today in this place that you would use all the things that we don't agree about to refine us, that as iron sharpens iron, we would get better and better and that we would realize that in some of these things, we're never gonna get the answer. But nonetheless, God, that doesn't matter. What really matters is that while we are wrestling together, we are proclaiming the gospel and living out your hope and your life here in a dark world. We pray that today, God, despite the fact that there may be things we agree about or don't, God, we pray that we would be following so well that others would come to know to Jesus that we've experienced by seeing us. We pray this in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.